0: Hello and welcome to Face the Music, a podcast presented by Tone Deaf, where we sit down with some of the biggest and best players in the music game and chat through their origin stories, how they got to where they are, what makes them tick, what inspires them, you name it, we've got it here. I'm Al Belling, I'm your host, and this week we've got a very, very special episode, Lewis Hobber. One half of the Hobber and Hing show on Triple J, which happens every single day between 3 to 5.30 p.m., Monday to Friday. And also one half of the very, very widely loved and respected Veronica and Lewis duo, which also was on Triple J at the same time. Lewis sat down with me to do a podcast about growing up, getting into broadcasting and landing where he is now at Triple J. Uh, it was extremely exciting. I went into the Ultimo uh, sort of studio, I guess you could say, where the ABC is based in Sydney, and Lewis was very kind. He lent me 30 minutes of his time. Uh, coronavirus had just kicked in, so we did the obligatory uh, fist bump when we met and parted, and, yeah, it was great. We sort of just sat down there in the uh, foyer of the ABC and lots of journalists walked past us while we were set up with my little <laughs> portable roadcaster podcast kit with socks pulled over the microphones. So, you know, this is DIY radio at its finest. So without further ado, here we go. Here's my chat with Lewis Hobber. Up in Torquay,
1: is that how I say Torquay, yeah, oh, yeah, terrible start.
0: Um, that's a footy town, I'm assuming,
1: sort of. Yeah, it's a coastal town, so it's um, it's right near Bell's Beach, mm-hmm. so it's one of the like big start of like all rip curl, quicksilver, all of like Australia's surfing culture. So it is a it's a mostly a surfing town, yeah, um, but it's about half an hour of Geelong, so True. it's a footy town
0: as well. Cool, so mm. like, was like being into like music and sketch comedy and stuff when you were growing up because I read you sort of fell in love with Triple J for example when you were like 12 yeah did that was that like a weird thing to be into when you were growing up or Um, like what did that look like in your life a little like I I guess um, I don't know like
1: probably a lot of school at that time there's um, like we used to listen to Triple J on the bus so our school bus you know we used to drive it was about an hour long school bus home from from Geelong to where my, my parents lived like there's a little coastal property like yeah uh in the middle of nowhere so we just used to listen to triple j sort of by proxy from when i was in sort of year six so i just sort of fell in love with it also had older sisters and which i help think which i think helps you get into music at a younger age you know you don't have to discover it all oh. for yourself Good. i had um cooler older sisters kind of going this is what you should listen to rage against the machine lauren hill oh, radiohead things of that things oh. like that so but, you know, at, from like 11 or 12, that was kind of what I was listening to. Yeah. Did
0: you have like a, like what was, it, like, what was the first record you really fell in love with slash like, I don't know, what what, what would you have voted for in The Hottest 100 back <laughs> in your day when you sort of, back uh, in your day? In,
1: I, was... well, well, the first album I really remember falling in love with was The Miseducation of Lauren Hill, which my sister had brought home. And also I had one of those weird things where my sister had bought um, Nirvana, the MTV Live Unplugged
0: album. Where my most listened to your record?
1: <laughs> it's extraordinary, but it was one of those things where I listened to that so much as a kid. I thought they were the versions. I didn't realise that there was, like, an original version of, you know, like, all of these incredible Nirvana songs. And then when I heard them recorded properly a few years later, I was, like, 15, I'm like, nah, I think it's better live. <laughs> yeah, fair
0: enough.
1: I think the version of
0: Plasma was so, so beautiful. But, yeah. yeah, it's got a special place in my heart that right.
1: Totally yeah, I, I could listen to that forever.
0: Yeah. Are you um, like with sketch comedy as mm. well? Or, like when you sort of got into that? Were you always into that when you were growing up in as well? Was there a big community for no. that kind of thing? Absolutely
1: <laughs> not. So I went to school with Veronica who I uh, did the radio show with and up until just a couple of weeks ago So we knew each other at school, but like no, there's no comedy in like coastal Victoria uh, in like the mid 2000s absolutely not like it didn't exist the idea of it being a job didn't exist the idea of working on triple j was not even in like the furthest reaches of my imagination like it was a thing that cool people that i would never meet and never knew of did like i used to get on like trains and go two hours into melbourne to go and see like the triple j broadcaster in the comedy festival i'd get there at 6 a.m and like sit there until nine watching like those presenters from when i was a kid and that was like that was my whole i thought that was the coolest thing in the world so i was a uh, tragic from a really young age
0: i know a lot of people like trying something like comedy for the first time or music or presenting or whatever that's like such a nightmare to so many people to go to you know a first like mic night or yeah on stage for the first time so like what was your i guess route into that given that lack of community where you were growing
1: up? Yeah, so I, I didn't do any comedy or any performing until I moved to Melbourne for uni. So um, I went down there and I did uh, I went to, did media for a bit and then I went to VCA, like the, the art school, to study film there. And I my first stand-up ever was raw comedy. Wow. Yeah. Uh, nice. So I entered raw comedy, oh God, I don't even remember the year. But it was, I would have been like 21, 22, and it was obviously terrible. It was disastrous. <laughs> Mark Fennell, I don't know if you know, um my Fennel from from everything, um, he claims to have a copy of my first ever stand up performance. He reckons he has it. He has the audio somewhere, and I will pay him whatever I have to make sure that never comes out. It's not offensive. It's just it's just shit. Yeah. It's just so shit. And I'll never I'll, I'll never forget the I got the way I got introduced. Um, I had like gone out to buy these like new comedy clothes. I'm like this. I got to get some new shit so that when I'm on stage I look cool. And I had like quite thick black glasses at the time. And, uh, and I, I bought these like black skinny jeans and a red and white striped shirt. And without realizing it, I had dressed exactly like Where's Wally. And like, it didn't even, I was so focused on like the, these like dumbass jokes that were just like parodies of Ricky Gervais that I, I didn't even think of it. And uh, the, the guy who was announcing me, I still think it was Tom Gleeson, but I can't hundred percent say that that's true. Um, Introduced me by assuming I was aware doing just going to do heaps of Where's Wally jokes, and he's like, "Ladies and gentlemen, here's our Where's Wally impersonator, Lewis Hover." Oh man! And I came out, and you know, like I was so scared, and I had no Where's Wally material, and I had no ability to like think on my feet. I was no, fucking bits, right, i fucking mean. <laughs> terrified. Nothing, and uh, I just froze. And I got through that round, but it was, man, it was, uh, it was bad. It was very bad.
0: A lot of people chat about bombing, mm. so to speak, as being such a parade. Growing experience, yeah. Like, full disclosure, there's just stacks of Joe Rogan, right? <laughs> I find it incredibly interesting hearing about like good comedians how they sort of develop that confidence just to meet themselves through some of those experiences. Did you ever have a time where you, know, you just didn't get the laughs and you had to really think about did you want to pursue it or not?
1: Um, yeah, I think probably those early things. I don't know if it was ever like a hard bomb because i think particularly at raw comedy people want to be supportive yeah so they're not there going you think you're funny you suck they're, they're going you don't know if you're funny yet let's give you a little pat on the back and see how you go but then pretty much straight after that that was when i um applied for this job in sydney um which was on the show called hungry beast which was like the sketch comedy show so i pretty much went from thinking that i was going to try doing stand-up to sort of six months later moving to sydney and becoming a full-time comedy writer at the ABC so it was like I kind of skipped um, this period where I would have would definitely have bombed and pretty much stopped doing stand-up for a few years until I picked it back up again Um, but yeah I mean I've bombed heaps I'm not that I'm constantly terrible but we my first like big failures were on TV really And that's much worse. We did a hungry
0: base sketch. Yeah.
1: Oh, so many episodes in our first season were bad. Like it was the whole concept of the show was people from eight between eighteen and thirty who'd never worked in TV before trying to do a TV show, (laughs) and we didn't even know what it was. They just gave us this show and were like, "You're on at nine o'clock on Wednesday night. You're on in three months. Good luck."
0: Wasn't the brief like tell us something we don't know or something?
1: That sort of became the brief, yeah. That's
0: what that's what the wiki world. Yeah, told me, but... <laughs> yeah.
1: That was that was the goal, is that we wanted to do that to the audience, but we were just we were just shit. Like we were brand new. Like and it, it's a we, I'm so grateful that the ABC gave us a chance to be shit and then gave us a second season. Mm. It's not a chance that they uh, give a lot of people anymore because of money. So we were really lucky that we got to be shit and that we still got to come back and get better. But yeah, we—I mean, you know—it was back at we, we we were bad on TV right at the start of like Twitter and the start of like angry Facebook. Yeah, like, okay. the, our, our bombing was involved far more death threats than your average bad stand-up. Right. Yeah. That's, that's, that's
0: <laughs> nice. So how did you like? Because a lot more people are obviously watching you when you're on TV, man. That's yeah. a huge shifts, like maybe people are beginning to recognise you in public and stuff, and I guess. <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm assuming the point of shows like that is that, like, almost being willing to make a fool of yourself and committing to the bit. Yeah. I mean, so to speak, like, did it take you a while to really become confident in your own sense of humor and what you thought would be funny for other people? Totally. Or, or yeah.
1: Yeah, and it took, me, it took me ages, like years and years. And I still wouldn't say that I am necessarily. I'm still terrified all the time about performing. Um, I just have, like, a lot of performance. I have, like, anxiety about performance. It's a, it's a scary thing still no matter like whether it's radio or T V or, or live stuff, it's never I would never describe it as relaxing. Yeah,
0: absolutely.
1: Um, it's nice, it's satisfying, it's exciting and fun and I love it and I don't want to do anything else. But it's it's still terrifying most days.
0: So with radio card happy media because you know it's that old clay channel, you can you want to work. You you can I mean, I don't
1: know how can you guys use the dump button or if even is one anymore. There 100% is, yeah. We are, <laughs> all shows are done 10 seconds in 10 second delay. Yeah, But we've actually, I hate saying this, I've never had to use it. Yeah, I, cool. I, I, I'm looking for some wood to touch, but like. <laughs> um, this afternoon, like someone spills
0: who's going to win the hottest or something. We have to quickly do it. To yeah, I, it's actually in a really
1: inconvenient location on the radio panel. Like most of the buttons are like relatively in front of you the dumb button is like this it, it's it's really inconveniently located off to the side off deep onto my right so if, and you only have 10 seconds so if someone um, said something that I had to dumb I don't 100% know that I would reach it in time <laughs> <laughs> every few months I'm like I have to reacquaint myself with where it is and be like there it is there it is there. It is. Uh, <laughs> practice the motions
0: yeah um, obviously like, there's so much for Involved with doing a radio show, particularly you know, on one with the reach that Triple J has, and there is a lot of responsibility with that, as there was with Hungry Beast as well. Like, with that amount of preparation that went into that, what did that look like for you? And I guess how is that different to maybe the preconceptions that you had about doing this sort of career before? You?
1: Like in a daily preparation or like yeah. a more broad preparation?
0: Oh sort of daily, yeah. yeah. So I've been <laughs> no, 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 that's all right. Um, I'd say
1: it... I, I feel like it's... You, TV is, like, hectic. Like um, TV, I would say the hours are more intense and the pressure is more intense because the expectation of the finished product is different. Like, when stuff goes on TV, the expectation is that it is polished, it has been edited, it has been reviewed, it's been scripted. Like, it, it goes through so many hands, so by the time it gets on TV, the expectation is it is shiny. Whereas radio is, it, it's more conversational, it's daily. You know, we're doing whatever, 12 and a half hours a week. You know, yeah. there's no TV show that's doing 12 and a half hours of content a week. So the expectation is a bit different. So you, the, when I when we came out of TV to radio, we, we arrived like going like, all right, we're willing to work the 14 hour days we've been doing for TV. Like we are well, ready to like go in there. And then you just realize that it is a marathon, like radio is, the, the challenge isn't, you know, that, I don't know how to quite phrase it, but the challenge is doing it every day for a long period of time. Yeah. Like you need to be able to do it as well in January as you're doing it in at December at the end of the year. And so you kind of need to like learn to like, do it every day and, and fill up five, you know, two and a half hours of ideas every day.
0: Wow. So when you have a co-host, how far does that relationship have to be away from the mic in order to be able to fulfil that, you know, quota?
1: It's funny. I, like Veronica and I have known each other since we were sort of fourteen, so we've been friends forever. Yeah. And and you know, since we got this job in Hungry Beast when we were like twenty-three or something, we pretty much haven't been out of a, like We've been in in a room together every day, almost every day since. So yeah. it, we had an incredibly close relationship, but it got like when you spend that much time with someone. At work we didn't necessarily hang out that much outside work
0: sure we're seeing each other
1: 50 hours a week you know like, like cool. yeah and also you want to when you see each other on air and when you're on you kind of wanted to have you want to have some shit to say to each other that you haven't heard you know if you then leave and hang out again by the time you get to work and you need to talk on radio it's like you, you don't want to be redoing conversations on air you want them to be fresh and spontaneous or else it's just boring so yeah, you kind of learn to hide things from them in a way. Like you get in and you know you've got you've got a good story. Like oh, it's a great thing happened to me last night, and you weirdly they're like, how was your night last night? And you don't tell them. Like oh, this is so fine. Strange. And you you've got like, your best friend there, and you're lying to them about what happened because you want to be able to tell them at the right time for like maximum. Like story, but it's a very weird relationship when your like best friend becomes also your job.
0: Yeah, we've got, like, right, talk back yeah. we got some great opportunities. Yeah, yeah. As authentic as possible. Yeah. What? So then, what does that look like? Your life change because obviously everything's different and things come in, yeah. and like it's it's great to listen to, but has that been very tricky to navigate? Not in terms of being himself as a presenter, but just
1: Um, I wouldn't say very tricky. It's been a uh, it's definitely a different thing for your brain I think when you spend so much time with anyone I don't know if you have this in your job, but I think most people will have it at some point in their lives When you get a relationship with someone where so much of your relationship is unspoken You know what they want. They know what you want. You can actually tell what they're thinking from like the flicker of an eyebrow You know how they're feeling from the moment you see them. It is a fully symbiotic relationship and so you don't have to do that much talking to do a lot of understanding, you know? You can actually just, you just get each other. And Hingers and I have been friends for a really long time and I fucking love the guy. But uh, we don't have that, we don't, we don't really know how to read each other in the way that say Veronica and I did. So it's yeah. more just that it's, it's kind of exciting in a new way. It's like you come in every day and the things that I'm used to doing just because they're my like habit, yeah. all of a sudden I have to explain why we're doing that. You know and it's so it's it's kind of nice it's actually made me recheck a bunch of things that I was probably just doing you know without really thinking about it and now I'm kind of thinking about why yeah
0: it's always like, well, cool to grow and yeah. <laughs> be challenged at work especially when you've been doing it for a while yeah um sort of zooming out a bit more probably now to kind of where you're at as a presenter and what your thoughts are on the entire thing it does feel like there's probably never been a more oh, like, Influential time to be a broadcaster just with the nature of social media and how much everyone have a same conversation and can listen in at any time as opposed to say even 30 or 40 years ago. So do, do you feel like because you do have a platform and people do hear your takes on things, regardless of you know whether you're trying to express an opinion or not, is that I don't know, does that kind of make you more guarded naturally? Like, are you um, Um, more aware of... I think
1: so. I think guarded... I'd like to think guarded in a a good way. Like, I definitely think that you just... It stops us from shooting our mouth off about shit we don't understand. You know, you want to make sure that you know what you're talking about before you start saying too much, which can be hard when you're actually just on air all the time and sometimes you can get a caller on who throws something at you And you're like, oh wow, this is actually an issue that I haven't had, I haven't really thought about before. But I think the more time you spend on air and the more people get to know you, the more you can say, wow, like, I don't really know about that. That's something to consider. And people will go, oh, okay, well, he either knows it and will we'll speak on it or he doesn't and will shut up about it. Yeah. And also you just learn to ask questions. If, if you're, one of the great things of our job is the amount of people you talk to who know so much more than we do. Like our job is to, you know, well, I'm an idiot, and our like great, our great joy is that we get to speak to people who are much smarter than we are every day. So that's kind of the the fun part. So I think yeah, like guarded. You want to make sure you don't say shit that you you don't, you want to make sure you don't talk about stuff you don't understand because it's just ir- it's irresponsible.
0: Um, it's funny because like a lot of people in your line of work maybe don't do the five day a week. Being, mm. um, but you know you're in a different situation because you do have this radio show that I guess you have some sort of routine mm. that goes into your week, which you know can be a blessing and a curse for creatives as well. So like, do you find that as that routine is set in over the past like half a decade or whatever, you're still able to kind of flex that creative muscle just as naturally as you were when you kicked off?
1: Yeah, that's really interesting because I. Um, I had never had a routine until this job. It's the only job I've ever had that lasted for longer than three months. I could always work on TV contracts, so you do a season. You do like four weeks pre-production, you do a 10-episode show, and then you're unemployed again. So part, you spend half your job looking for your next job. And so it is stressful. Like that is a, the, like, I don't know. I I found the routine of this job quite uh, constricting at the start. I hated the idea that I would have a I was like, "Oh my god, I've got a job for a whole year." I was like, "What am I going to do? Like, this is (laughs) yeah."
0: yeah.
1: I found it terrifying, Um, but I also think it was, to be honest, in retrospect, much better for my mental health now. Like, I think now one thing that I've really in this job is actually, if you're an anxious person, um, having a like knowing that you actually have a job for a year, it's actually has actually been um, incredible for me to not be in a constant state of anxiety about whether or not I was going to have a roof over my head next year yeah. but you know that being said it's still only ever a job for a year if I don't oh. know what I'm doing in January next year and I'm, I haven't I haven't known that in any you know March of any year mm. you know we don't, we always make our decision about whether we're going to stay on at the end of the year so we never so. have more than a year-long contract so yeah. you know I wouldn't call it so it's security by the standard of a creative it's not security by the standard of uh, of a regular person with a regular job but yeah i i really i like having an office i like having people around you know my, my a lot of my work before that was freelance writing i would just sit in my bedroom by myself writing scripts for people and i liked elements of that but i didn't like the loneliness it wasn't good for my brain you know i i need to find ways to get out and be around people
0: I, I've never thought I'd hear like of mine be like, I like being in the office. But I can completely understand because like you just said, you don't have that isolation and you can bounce off other people all the time. Has that, I guess, changed your approach then to writing and preparing where you feel like it's way more of a collaborative thing now for you than it used to be?
1: Yeah, I think it was like a like a lot of things have been creative, I think you go to an extreme and then the other extreme and then you find your middle. Like I think for me it was like I was alone, I I was like, I like to write alone, I'm going to sit alone in my bedroom for 10 hours and I'm going to write jokes. And then I was like, oh, I'm going crazy. And then I went, okay, I've got to be around people. I'm going to put myself around people 12 hours a day. And then I was like, oh, I'm going crazy. And now it's kind of that thing of going, okay, Lewis, be an adult, you need to do a little bit of people, you need to do, then you need to go away for an hour and write by yourself and you need to show it to some people. It's just kind of like... I think for me, it's a, I need to do a little of both. I need to have some alone time to think, and I need some people to bounce off, and I need some alone time again. And I feel like I've found that middle ground much more happily now.
0: Mm. <laughs> That's it. Well, to kind of wrap like, around, around this chat, we'll we finish off kind of the more music round. Mm. Um, you're around music every single day, mm. but at the same time, you're probably listening to a lot of similar stuff all the time, just because of the nature of songs being out, full rotation and all that, and also, as naturally happens, watching Triple J plays mm. changes a lot. Like mm. even just listening to the hottest 100 of the decade, it's crazy listening back to like the indie folk days where <laughs> yeah, fully. guitar and skinny jeans is cool and stuff. Um, what kind of music are you into, generally in speaking?
1: Most of what I listen to outside of work is hip hop. Yeah, a lot of hip hop. Um, that's that's most of my my musical diet. It's not my whole musical diet, but it's it's a big chunk of it. Um, uh, a lot of the stuff that makes like our uh, slightly out of demo listeners angry, a lot of mumble rap, <laughs> a lot of uh, just ignorant, dumb rap. I don't know. That's 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 a lot. I like that's my happy place. That's my that's my feelings music. I actually just love that.
0: Have you found it hard to remain? Well, not hard, but like, do you find yourself always having to consciously remain a music fan and divorce the work element? Yeah,
1: it can be a bit tough. It's funny, like, like in terms of listening to music at work, because our show is, you know, Inger and I are essentially there to talk about the music, play the music, but also like our show is where it's us doing stuff. It's interviews and so to be honest, a lot of the times we put the songs on and then we turn the volume down and we talk about what we're about to talk about in the next three minutes. So we don't listen to that much of the music that we play on our show because we're actually trying to figure out what we're going to do on our show. So, um, but you know, we listen to obviously the station's on all day and we love those bands and we're interviewing them, we're listening to all their albums before we speak to them and um, so yeah, we obviously hugely listen to a lot of that music. But yeah, you do have to, um, you can get overwhelmed by the amount of music you listen to as I'm sure you would as well. And sometimes you have to be like, and also sometimes, you know, there are bands that we will interview or whatever on the station that aren't necessarily my favorite band.
0: It's like a fake it, yeah, well, not
1: necessarily fake it. It's just try to find, like, it's not about us, it's about the audience. The audience love them. And so our job is to find what's interesting about them for the audience. You know, so it's kind of not, it's the radio station is not the music that I like. Like, it's not about that that's people wouldn't listen to that radio station <laughs> and I wouldn't expect them to it's kind of our job is to um you know be a conduit from the music to the music fans and we're music fans so we just it's pretty easy to find like I, I I gather you're a heavy music fan from my uh like I heavy music is one of those genres that I can appreciate but I don't I'm not that literate in that genre you know and like I but we interview a lot of heavy bands and I love them like they're the, Generally speaking, the oh, nicest musicians in Australia.
0: Mate, heavy music festivals, <laughs> the biggest amount of TV as
1: you'll ever come Yeah, to it's, honestly, like, it's, you, strange. it's crazy. Like, you listen to these guys, like, I don't know, like Amity Affliction. like, like there's heavy Australian bands, and they come in and they just want to talk about how they spent the weekend cleaning up the waterways, oh, you know. Totally, really nice, you know, mate, they're angels. Fun. But, you know, it takes me a bit of work to prepare for those interviews because I can't, if it's like a hip-hop interview, I can... I already have listened to the album, I already know the backstory, I don't really have to research it because I know it. But With some of those bands I have to do a bit more work because the audience cares and so, and the the truth is like part of the joy is then I will look into it and then all of a sudden I'm like, you know what, fuck yeah. I love these guys, I love this band. And so sometimes I'm thankful of being made to do the work because it makes me fall in love with something that I wouldn't have anyway.
0: I'll be looking after you throwing down in a (laughs) a high school pit at some point over the next year for sure. Take the glasses off. Totally. <laughs> I mean, look, dude, you've been, it's been great to catch up and hear about, you know, your experience coming through the ranks to like where you are now. To finish off, hottest you know, 100 of the decade, mm. a big deal. We'll definitely know who has placed by the time it just comes out. Yeah. To but who, like, what? Are, what are your picks of potential <sighs> top fiveers?
1: God damn! It's I, je- I can't stress enough. They don't show us the list. Yeah. Because otherwise, we'll be an idiot and say it on air. But <laughs> I would say, poof I mean, there's got to be a Kanye. It's got either Runaway or Monster.
0: Yeah, okay. surely. Well, a lot of people say that.
1: Yeah, I would say maybe Gang of Youths, Magnolia is going to be up there. I mean, we haven't heard Billie Eilish yet. Like, I still think that her fans, um, you know, are still actively voting pretty heavily. I feel like she could have a really good running. God.
0: That's the people going to look in. have up oh, that's picks. That's interesting. That's wow. Kind of dark horse it <laughs> has,
1: yeah. I don't know. I haven't... I I would say maybe top ten but I guess I wouldn't predict a top five but now you've said it I honestly have no idea. I mean, I like, Australia loves Gang of Youths and why wouldn't you? I feel like and Magnolia is a, a, a song that no matter how many times you listen to it still grabs you by the heart and the guts so I... I, I would love to see that in the top five yeah I don't know right. man I don't know that's why it's exciting so I'm like, seeing that like we were, we were playing songs in like the 170s yesterday I'm like how the hell is this at 170 the hell is gonna be in the top five I'm I'm frothing I'm I'm really excited about finding it out So
0: well look this, be, this is going to be a deeply ironic thing to listen back to, but yeah. <laughs> hopefully there's consensus around the general public as yeah. to what wins it. But It'll be
1: number one thrift shop. They did <laughs> it again.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, look, man, thanks so much for taking the time. And, oh, my yeah, pleasure. And all the best we've been doing. Oh, thanks. Likewise. you so much to Lewis for giving me half an hour of his time and yeah I guess just you know really uh throwing it all at the wall in terms of what he thought was going to land there and in the, in the hottest hundred of the decade for Triple J and you know opening up about growing up in rural Australia you know the works it was really really awesome to chat to him and we're extremely thankful that he's been on the show all right, next week, we have Nicole Miller sitting down with us to talk about her journey through the music industry. You can like this podcast, but I'd much rather you actually reviewed it and <laughs> shared it with your friends. Uh, giving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts would be a really massive help just for, you know, getting this podcast out to more people. So that'd be fantastic if you could take the time to do that if you enjoy what we're doing here at the moment. But for now, this has been Face the Music presented by Tone Deaf. I'm Al Belling. Follow me on Twitter at Al underscore Belling. Next week, we've got Nicole Miller. See you then.